I'm Mark Walsh, and coming up on today's show... Our main program is a six-month fellowship, which we call the NLC Institute. And one weekend a month, you come together with about 20 other incredible leaders who, again, cross industry, which I call the three I's. Diversity of industry, issues, and identities. One of the most diverse ecosystems in this country. Welcome to What's Working in Washington on Federal News Network and streaming as a podcast. It's What's Working in Washington. I'm your host, Mark Walsh, and today our guest is Claire Bresnahan English. She is the CEO of the New Leaders Council. You're going to like this conversation. She tells you a couple of things that I think would interest almost everybody. First, she started as a young lobbyist for the Girl Scouts of America. And she talks about what it was like being a lobbyist at a very young age, just out of college here at AU in Washington, D.C., visiting uh, congressional and senatorial offices, promoting women, frankly, women in leadership and what the Girl Scouts means and how sometimes those famous cookies we know and love were the tremendous door openers that we all would expect them to be. The second thing, among many things we talk about, is the future. And at New Leaders Council, they are training tomorrow's generation of leaders for both the private sector, politics, and not-for-profit organizations. Zennials, as they call them, Gen Z, coming up after millennials. Watch out for them. I shouldn't say watch out. Just be aware that they are even more committed to diversity, more committed to transparency, more committed to all the things we're seeing millennials mention to those currently in power. They are even more energized than ever before. So Claire talks about what it might mean for our future and how companies, not-for-profits, and even our elected officials will be acting like and be held to account for. It's a great talk. Here's our conversation. Welcome, Claire. Thank you, Mark. Excited so, to be here. For, well, thank you for saying that. We'll see if you still say that at the end. But for those listening who may or may not know, in full disclosure, I'm on the board of the New Leaders Council, was on the original board, and in fact was chair of the search committee that found Claire as she joined the organization two and a half years ago? Two years ago now. Two years ago. We're just time, at my anniversary. Time flies. Well, it's great to uh, to celebrate that. But the New Leaders Council is something near and dear to both of our hearts, and we'll talk about that a little bit later in the show. But first, let's tell our listeners more about you. From Cincinnati, from the humble beginnings of Cincinnati, walk us through uh, your, your, your upbringing and how you came to Washington, D.C. Cincinnati, Ohio, uh, born and raised you know, really small midtown, Midwestern feel in the sense of no one else had really left Ohio before. But for me, I was I always talk about how in the third grade, big year, came to Washington, D.C. for the first time. And I was I was blown away. It was a city fully dedicated to social studies. Sign me on board. So since the third grade, I had a goal of coming to Washington, D.C. Um, came here for American University fell in love with it, got Potomac fever, but didn't really know what the heck I was doing in terms of, came from this background where my mom didn't go to college, grew up, in, uh, my dad was in a manufacturing background and really found my way through groups like New Leaders Council in terms of feeling like a small fish in a big pond. And then got a big break with my first job at Girl Scouts of the USA where I had an incredible mentor named Lori Wesley who gave me lots of great opportunities where I got to be a junior lobbyist on the team, work with the Obama White House Council of Women and Girls, and developed for the next 10 years a whole career focused on women in politics. And along the way also was very much involved with New Leaders Council, and that's where I've gotten here today. Well, before, so talk to me about being a lobbyist at that young age. I mean, as we all know, the the city of Washington, D.C. is often accused of being 
awash with the the wrong side of the word lobbyist. What was that like as a young person? What did you see that that shocked you or surprised you? What did you see that you expected? Okay, so what surprised me was the fact that it's really just about education advocacy, right? So you've got this image of where it's all these guys in suits and steak wood dinners, panel, right? Yeah. Steak dinners, offices that are wood paneled, and for us, it was focused on how do you bring girls' perspective to policymaking, which so often, if you think about it, still most right, most congressmen are men. Most mm-hmm. staffers are men. So when you're making childhood education policies, the growth perspective could also be lost. So just learning how the advocacy wasn't this dirty, behind-the-scenes transactional relationship. It was really educational. And to also be able to help the value of making sure that you build relationships before you need them was really important. So for the example, at Girl Scouts, we would do everything from talking about the need for a congressional coin. Very, very important to our membership. Congressional coin? A congressional coin. This was one of our biggest, yes. Every year, the U.S. Mint has two commemorative coins. I did not know this. And you have to have legislation to pass to be approved. It's no no cost to the taxpayers, but it does help build revenue, of course, for the U.S. government and for the organizations that benefit from them. So we had, like, we were up against, I, don't, I think, the Ronald Reagan coin. I think uh, Boy Scouts had had a coin, so it was time for Girl Scouts to have a it coin. It was time. It was time. It was past time. So also we had the biggest treat of, uh, because Girl Scout boxes of cookies are below the gift requirement, you could bring a box of cookies to every meeting. Delight, folks. But where I'm getting here is the point of when pensions have had clearly been have had some rough times. Yeah, rated. We also, yes, we were able, when we were doing work on pension reform, we had already built up relationships. So for me, it was just interesting to be able to, uh, particularly with these wide eyes from the Midwest, be able to see that it's not all transactional, that it really it mattered. So that's a, a heartwarming story, and I don't mean to flip it and, and go dark at all, but I'm yeah. sure there were moments where you were like, this is transactional, or, or this person is not listening you clearly overcame that, but but was that at all part of the experience? Because it's, I have to be honest, because it's Girl Scouts, you could get in the door yeah. a lot easier. So in some ways, I think it was a, a bit of a treat. It's or a good not, brand. It's, it's a good, a good brand, brand yeah. and it's also not, you know, you're just not going to have to fight your way into the doors. So yeah. it's, it's matters of what you, once you're in the door, what do you do with it? I think that's where it got frustrating of being able to, change up legislation or uh, I mean even I'll tell you getting that coin passed that I mean you know the scene you know the scene from American president yes when they're counting all the different votes yes it it was like that to be able to get a commemorative coin pass with the U.S. you did we had to whip the votes we were tracking I mean it's just as incredible so to be able to see how much effort it took even for something like that to honor a great institution um, and I could uh, some stories to be remained silent in those halls yes. of what it took to be able to get that bill passed. We're talking with Claire Bresnahan English, the CEO of the New Leaders Council based here in Washington, D.C., a training program for young professionals who are going to run our nation someday. And we'll get to that in just a little bit. But after the Girl Scouts, that was there a transition to your next opportunity with She Should Run? And you also got a degree at Hopkins. So tell us about that. Yeah, because I am like any other D.C. person where I can't stand to have any free time. I decided, why why not work full time at a great group called Women's Campaign Fund, which was the first PAC started for for women back in the 1970s. And from there, was part of the founding team that launched She Should Run. And at the same time, started grad school uh, with a master's in public 
uh, management around the same time. And so I think at th- the Johns Hopkins at University, the, Johns Ho- the one and only now, Johns as a Hopkins. Baltimore as a Baltimore native, I have to promote that brand at all times. I know it's here in D.C., but we're a Baltimore institution. Well, let me so tell you, you that it was also really wonderful. Whereas the one program designed for folks in D.C. who are working and yeah. going to school, which yeah. from my background, I, I, I didn't have the luxury of taking off to go to grad school same time I had to I had to work through and I'll tell you at that point I would go to cocktail parties and say I work for she should run I'm starting up this group called she should run and people would say oh that's great are you, are you training girls mm. to run for marathons yeah. or to do cross country I'm like oh, wow. no, no 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 we're about encouraging women and girls to run for office and I think after 2016 election folks have taken for granted the understanding or particular long Washington circles that, of course, we need to encourage women and girls to run for office. I think there was a an awareness and a consciousness that grew from that election. But before then, it really wasn't the norm. There were a couple of players in the field, of course, who focused on um, candidates who I think were really well on their way. But at Shishiran, we wanted to get to the women who had never even thought about it, who had never seen themselves as a candidate. Because if you're if you're thinking about how there are twenty over 250,000 elected positions in this country, if you're going to actually get gender parity and have 50% by in our lifetimes, you would need hundreds of thousands of women running. And that yeah. was our focus yeah. is wide net. Did you start at the federal level here in DC or were you encouraging women to run for school board oh, in school Cincinnati boards, or whatever? School boards, water commission, everything. everything. Right, exactly. Uh, but also going through this delicate dance of for so often women are told, particularly women of color, to like take your time, start at the lowest position, build your way up. When not necessarily, um, I'd say their male colleagues get that message. We're just go, go for whatever office you feel Shoot most high. passionate about. Yeah. Shoot high. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, I love this story um, over, you know, we mentioned American University. They had great work on a Women in Politics Institute there. And the research said that they, <laughs> one of the great case studies was they were, they were interviewing folks who'd run for office, men and women. And for one of the one of the guys said, oh, yeah, I was encouraged to run for office because I was, you know, at an airport bar. I stroke up a conversation with a guy, and we had yeah, two hours later, it was so great. The guy said, hey, you should run for office. And, I, and he said, yeah, I should. I should run for office. Versus when they were interviewing all these women, they had been, you know, PTA president, right, running everything in their local communities. And when folks would encourage them to run, they say, oh, no, 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 not me, not me. So recognizing how uh, you need to encourage at every level, but to r- remind women that you don't start with where you're most qualified don't need to short sell yourself yeah so <clears throat> how were you funded and what was the experience like it sounded like it was positive uh, but what, what was the outcome we were funded mostly through individual major donors mostly women who had been involved with the women in politics movement for a long time but were frustrated with not seeing enough progress and at an accelerated rate particularly after 2010 there was even a backslide in the number of women in congress mm. and then also we had quite a few corporate sponsors who understood that getting women politically engaged was part of their portfolio of promoting gender equity. Did any women who were in federal office reach out to you and say, how can I help, or even at state levels? Oh, yes. We had folks from uh, Tulsi Gabbard was one of our original supporters. Um, We had Carolyn Maloney, um, Republican women as well, Martha Roby. So it was was nonpartisan effort because Mm -hmm. we truly believed if you're going to get 50%, 50%, it's not going to be only on one side of the aisle, right? Mm-hmm. Like, uh, you're not going to magically all of a sudden have only Democratic women. You need to have it on both sides. Um, so then 
going forward, though, it was really the it was the state legislatures. And I have to say, I think what's something that was different about She Should Run was, and I, we see this at New Leaders Council, too, is the power of the stories of the local women, the everyday women, and that's who you want to highlight. We're so long in this country, and I think in this region, oh, I get it, we're naturally drawn to the congressmen, the congresswomen who are advocating for a certain issue. But when you listen to the local folks and what they have gone through to be able to get into leadership positions, that's when you're going to get insights to understand what barriers are they facing? What kind of resources do they actually need to get over the hurdles? Um, and understanding why, particularly when you see how little women of color, men of color are still in office, to be able to listen to those folks, that's where you're going to be able to, uh, I think, be able to make the greatest change. Well, I had a business school degree from a, an MBA a bunch of years ago. But as you know, most business schools in America, as we as we finish up on this topic, are stupendously concerned, as they should be, about getting women in power at the C-suite on the boards of directors and stuff. Last point on this conversation, were there lessons learned from your jobs that she should run that you think might have leaked over to the private sector? And were you able to have those conversations? Yes, I think that's actually why a lot of our board members or corporate sponsors were interested in engaging with us because we would do events talking with their, you know, women business resource groups. But the fact of where the need to have sponsors and to go beyond mentorship, right, with this, I know it's a cliche, talk about sponsors, but you really have to take that personal investment and walk side by side. And it's holistic. It's providing financial support. Maybe in the corporate sector, it's more training. Mm -hmm. Uh, Actually having folks who are in rooms of decision making, hard advocating for that person or person's advancement matters. And you see that with also across parties in state parties, making sure there isn't some anointed person, right? Same thing in the corporate structure, making sure there isn't one anointed guy who's due for the promotion. We're here with Claire Bresnahan English. She's the CEO of New Leaders Council. We'll be back with more conversation after this little break. What's Working in Washington is a weekly show and a podcast that you should enjoy. And guess what? There are sponsorships available. So if you feel like having your message, your company, your organization, your not-for-profit, just yourself involved in this message and reaching our audience, They are available for you to participate in. Please email me, the host, Mark Walsh, at Walsh at AOL. Yeah, Walsh at AOL.com. I'm going old school here. And you can find out more about what those opportunities are. Thanks so much. We're excited to have with us Claire Bresnan English. She is the CEO of the New Leaders Council here, based here in Washington, D.C., with chapters everywhere. We're going to get an NLC in just a second. But I have to return to a, a topic we touched on, Girl Scouts. Okay, come on. Give us, lift up the curtain a little bit. Lift, pull it back. The cookies. High margin product made by who? Made by two bakers. Yes. So domestic? Domestic. Okay. Little uh, little brownies, and I think ABC, anyone out in their Girl Scout world are going to come back and tell me if I All got right. that second baker wrong. But the point is, is yeah. that in our office, we had the cookie cupboard, the cookie cupboard. Yeah. Literally, you open up the, the cupboard, every type of cookie that you'd want, a shipment came once a month. So wow. it, was, it was all year Girl Scout cookie <laughs> season. We knew which... Which offices, oh, which seasonal? staffers. Are there seasonal versions They're of seasonal. Cookies? Yeah, you can okay. only get them at a certain time of the year. Okay. Right? When you see them outside Giant. Or now, also a big thing that was happening when I was there for four years was we were 
making sure that we could sell cookies digitally. Because you think about this big transformation where girls yes. for so long had sold at the local grocery store or local door to religious, door to door. Yeah. But hey, you got to be able to sell online. And that's God, a good skill. That so thing. all yeah. that is to say is, yes, we got a monthly shipment, knew which staffers, which Congress folk liked which cookies. It was great. So this was an element of lobbying that I think no other organization could keep track of. And Congressman Wilson loved those thin mints. Or as Stafford did. Yes. Right. Staffers are key. And yeah. you, I would say that, you know, I said you could get in the door. When you have a box of Girl Scout cookies, oh. even the hardest, like, jaded Capitol Hill staffer, you should see how their light face, yeah. their face their lights hearts up. Melt. Hearts melt. Doors open. Rainbows come out. It's yeah. a good moment. All right, so back to the topic at hand, which is uh, we talked a lot about your experiences in lobbying and and also your experiences with She Should Run, getting women, women of color, all sorts of uh, of, of elements of, of encouraging women to run for all sorts of offices across America. And I think there's a natural transition to your job at the New Leaders Council. Talk to me about and our listeners what the NLC means and why you were what why you applied for the job. So for folks who who don't know NLC, I'm really excited to introduce you because we are, at this point, over the last 15 years, grown to be the largest leadership development organization for inclusive cross-sector leaders who are committed to political and social change rooted in equity. Boom. When I did their fellowship in 2012, it was life-changing for me. I mean, I talked about how I came to to D.C., bright-eyed, Midwesterner, it gave me a roadmap. It gave me skills. It was the first time I had media training. It was the first time I had major leadership development training. Well, let's go back. T- tell our yeah. listeners what you did in 2012. What, what was the experience? Well, you have a six. Our main program is a six-month fellowship, which we call the NLC Institute. And one week in a month, you come together with about 20 other incredible leaders who, again, cross industry, which I call the three I's, diversity of industry, issues, and identity. So it's going to be folks, even here in D.C., Different industries, issues, you could be everything from I was at Girl Scouts to healthcare to working up on Capitol Hill and identity. It's one of the most diverse ecosystems in this country. So at this point, our our 2021 class was over 70 percent folks of color, over 60 percent women or gender nonconforming folks, over 30 percent LGBTQIA. That institution where I met Lauren Underwood, who's now the youngest black woman ever elected to Congress, Christina Henderson, who serves on the city council in D.C., went on to even uh, Aaliyah Gaskins, who I was just on Alexandria's city council. She was both a She Should Run alum and an NLC alum. Beautiful. It is an incredible network of folks who are just on the cusp of transformation and change, but because they usually have identities that have been historically excluded from decision-making tables, we give them that leg up both through a network and a leaderful approach and really hard skills training to be a different so, type of leader. So it's one weekend a month for five month. or – was it six months at that six time? Six months, okay. yes. So, and each weekend had a theme? Yes. So communications training, fundraising training. So often – we know this. You can't fundraise unless you've actually done it. You've mm-hmm. had to make the ask, have to deal with the no's. How do you make that pitch? Um, also, on the difference between management and leadership, policy issues. I think what's unique about NLC is that each chapter, we have 50 chapters across the country. What we focus on in D.C. is going to be different than what we focus in Los Angeles to Maine, to Portland, Oregon, down in Florida and in Texas. So there are months that also are dedicated to what are the local issues that that chapter is focused on being able to build 
political and social change around equity and inclusion issues. So in your experience in 2012, and I know this has become even, I think, even more uh, central to the experience is the is the keystone or cornerstone. What 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 is that? When does it happen? What what happens to the cohort members who who do that? The cornerstone in equity work started to develop through I, by the nature of who we were recruiting and selecting to be in this fellowship. So when you're made up of that kind of plethora of leaders from a diversity of identity, they're going to want to see and make sure that the programming. The whole strategic plans are based in how are you building long-term systems change for equity, and no matter what sector you are. So whether you're in politics or you're in the private sector or you're in the nonprofit sector, that was very much based. We are a grassroots organization where our members wanted to make sure that the program, the curriculum, every aspect of the organization was reflective of their own experiences. And I think we've done an incredible job while growing to 50 chapters to also make sure that our programming and the entire culture of the organization reflects who we serve. But in the first session, don't the members sort of lay out what their, their vision of themselves? That, that's also something that's transformative. We call it lead weekend. It's where it's very intensive, self-reflective leaders who think about why do you want to lead, right? So everyone knows the Simon Sinek TED Talk on why. How often do we, what would this country be like if we had leaders who sat down for an entire weekend and really described why do you want to lead versus thinking about what's the next position I want to have or what's the next feather in a cap? If you can be clear on your values, on your strengths, where you need to grow, having very intensive conversations on are you living up to your values? Is the leadership path that you are um, heading down really reflective of those values? It's transformative. I've, I did that training for chapters around the country for seven years. And I saw people change jobs and pivot. I saw folks go off and run for office for the first time after. It's a really life-changing experience. And I think it's what's special about building intentional leaders who know how to weave equity throughout everything they do is because we do that first weekend of focusing on why. Why do you want to lead? So you, I think, uniquely have a position with your colleagues at seeing the next generation, I would argue political leaders. I know it's across the board, but, but political leadership and we we chatted off air about millennials versus the next zennials. Is that what they call them? Gen Z? Tell me what you think that's going to look like. I mean, millennials are clearly taking the the helm now to some extent, but where do we go in the consciousness of the next gen of leaders in DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion, and what's the B again? Is um, belonging. Belonging. Sorry, ESG in environmental, social, and governance, social impact. Is this going to accelerate in your opinion? Oh, it's it's going to blow us out of the water. So with millennials, as they enter the workforce and are now getting into leadership positions in the workforce, the commitment to social impact, right, has to be a business norm, no matter if you're in politics or in the private and nonprofit sector. For Xennials, for Gen Z, they are, I would say, an activist generation. They came of age in time of great unrest, great turmoil, a time of questioning. If you think about millennials, they came of era and a political time of hope. Now, uh, Gen Z has come in a time of always looking, wanting to be able to know how do they hold folks accountable. So you're going to see when your Gen Z gets into more and more leadership positions, accountability and transparency is going to be two of the core values that you'll see in any sector. Accountability and transparency, two things we don't tend to see at the state and national level. So we're in what's working in Washington. Make some predictions here. Like, Will accountability, accountability and transparency, I can't even say it, it's so odd to think about. Do you think that's going to make some fundamental differences in 
what happens here in Washington? I think it already has. I mean, look at Congresswoman Cori Bush, who, if you talk about accountability and transparency when we were coming up against the eviction moratorium, goes to the state capitol. That wasn't just some type of guerrilla marketing tactic. She has known and uh, understands the impact of how homelessness. And um, to be able to show how that's major accountability, to be able to make that kind of stand of demanding of the White House to be accountable to that policy change, right there you see also in terms of transparency of it being up on media, on social media, Absolutely. I think it's already changed in the summer. We saw it do policy change in action. And this isn't a political show, so I'm I'm seeing it on both sides of the aisle, quote unquote. The Madison Cawthorns, I guess. Uh, yes. I've got his name. And, and others. These are incredibly young people. I guess even at least Stefanik. I guess she's more of a millennial. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But she was the youngest woman, I think, elected into Congress when she first uh, took, took the right, seat. Right. And Martha Roby. They've been really they've also focused on. Um, moms in Congress and yeah. being able to make sure that there's better policies for staffers and congresswomen who are moms. So you see it on both sides of the aisle where it is. And again, you're going to see it in the I think you're going to see it in the private sector even more. OK, uh, where folks are going to demand of their leadership, not just their CEOs, but their not just their C-suite, the SVP suite of being much more transparent about how you make decisions for the business. How are you budgeting? That are going to be questions and they're going to want to know beyond your equity statement. They want to know what are your hiring practices? What's your retention rates? They're not going to just be satisfied with a statement. They want stats. They want the data and analysis. Wow. I mean, I, I, maybe you're seeing it every single day. But I, I see think, it every day. <laughs> I think there's going to be a collision between old and – I shouldn't say old and new, but prior to future. And do you see that collision being hopefully helpful or do you think it will be painful or maybe both? I think it's going to be – I think it's going to be a necessary tension point. Mm-hmm. And this is something to remember is that we get so nervous about tension in leadership discussions, but tension is where change happens, where evolution happens. There's never a moment of important evolution that doesn't come with tension and challenges. So yep. I would say for anyone who is getting worried about those tension points, embrace it, breathe through it, listen. What I would encourage, though, is And what we do at NLC that I think is so amazing is because we've been around for 15 years, we have what we call our old school, older millennials, and our Gen Z. And what we can learn from each other and to remember that you can pass on lessons, but also to make sure that you're constantly learning from the new leaders, you're going to actually get better results. You are. Tell our listeners where they can learn more about New Leaders Council. Newleaderscouncil.org. We have a a brand new shiny website. We'd love for you to come and see. We have – Opportunities where if you know of a leader in your community, again, we have 50 chapters, you can nominate a leader to join the NLC Institute Fellowship. Fantastic. Claire Bresnahan English, CEO of the New Leaders Council, thanks for joining us today on What's Working in Washington. See, that's the kind of conversation, I think, that has some insights that we should all take to heart. From millennials to zennials, this is coming down the road, is coming down the road, is part of our day-to-day, will impact companies, will impact legislation, will impact elections, will impact not for uh, NGOs and not-for-profits. So uh, there's a rare, important perspective to hear about what's coming up, and that's why it's called What's Working in Washington. Thanks for listening, everybody. Our executive producer and editor is Tracy Madigan. Our content intern is Anna DeGraff. And the theme music is performed by the Aberman Brothers. You've been listening to What's Working in Washington on Federal News Network and streaming as a podcast.